0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This show was pre-recorded on July 16th, so we're not taking any listener calls or questions today. We are interested in your comments, though. You can contact us at news at Just put Democracy Forum in the subject line. We'd love to hear from you. This is the sixth program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is Election Reflections, July 14, 2020. We'll talk about what happened, who won the Maine primaries, and why. How did Maine elections work under COVID restrictions, and what does it all mean for the high-stakes election in November? This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guests. Joining us by Zoom today is Matthew Dunlap. Matt is Maine's 49th Secretary of State, now serving in his fourth and final consecutive term his seventh term overall, because he had a little break in the middle there. He also chairs uh, the state's Complete Count Census Committee. Welcome, Matt. We're very pleased to have you on the show today.
1: Good to be back, Anne. Thanks for having me.
0: Also with us on Zoom is Amy Freed. Amy is professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Maine. She oversees the Maine Policy Scholar Program at the University of Maine also. Welcome, Amy great to be here, Ann. And finally, Jill Goldthwaite. Jill is an award-winning columnist for the Ellsworth American and the Mount Desert Islander, retired nurse, and former independent Maine State Senator. Jill also won re-election yesterday to the Bar Harbor Town Council. Congratulations, and welcome, Jill.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Okay, we made it. Um, we did not see ourselves on CNN Wednesday morning. <laughs> At least I don't think you were, were you, Matt? Um, oh, no. Because- <laughs> <laughs> we conducted a COVID-era election, and it wasn't a disaster. Far from it. We had high voter participation and not too many snafus. So congratulations to us all. Matt, let me put it to you first. I know you're still analyzing the results, but what, what
1: are your takeaways? Well, my takeaway is pretty much what you just said. You know, it, it was gratifying. We spent you know, several months trying to plan out what an election in a pandemic was going to look like. And you know, you were a part of those conversations uh, as were a lot of people and trying to map out what adjustments we were gonna have to make. And this all started really, uh, I remember back in early uh, February, I was in Washington DC for the winter meetings of the National Association of Secretaries of State. And that was about the time that what was happening in Wuhan was making the top of every news hour. And I've been to China and Wuhan is, is a city we've never heard of. Uh, Fifteen million people you know it's it's extraordinary how many people there are in China, and when they locked down the city, we were thinking this is big you know and, and we weren't really processing that this was going to wind up circling the globe so fast and that it was going to be affecting us so quickly and so completely um, but that you know we started to see cases uh, bloom around Asia, the Middle East, Europe, and then you know the west coast um and you know, we began getting the question, probably late February, uh, about what we would do for planning in a pandemic. And, you know, here we were a couple of days before the March 3rd presidential primary. And our response was, well, right now, we don't have any cases, so we're not thinking about it right now. Time comes, we'll think about it. Well, then, within two weeks- you know, cases, we had,
0: came, right?
1: cases came, right? and the governor declared the state of civil emergency. We sent everybody home from motor vehicles, closed all the branch offices. And we began talking about, you know, what's that June 9th primary going to consist of? You know, is, we, we knew just from watching Italy and New York that this was not going to be a two-week shutdown. This was going to be months, and we had to, had to adjust. And um, we, we came up with a whole laundry list of things, um, very few of which we wound up adopting. Um, and you recall we were talking about all absentee voting. Um, And there were concerns about that process, especially if town offices were closed. So um, in working with a lot of our our friends in the community uh, and and adjusting for some of the the things we needed to be able to do, like having the accessible voting system available, election day registration. Um, And we found some ways to cut Gordian knots, you know, like reducing what people touch. So we got a line on pens We bought half a million pens for like $7,000 and to take them with you, you know, sometimes collected them so they could clean them off and use them for November, which I thought was pretty, pretty frugal of them and appreciated that. Um, But really it wound up being that the biggest change was the change of the date and was pushed out to July 14th. Um, We got some federal money and we not only did we buy pens, we bought personal protective equipment for all the poll workers. And it was really something to see that deployed so effectively. And by the way, we got it from main companies. So That's that, was, great. that was even better. You know? so, so may,
0: Do you have a sense of whether turnout was particularly high for this kind of an election?
1: It was. And I think part of the reason for that was everybody talking about how on earth do you run an election in a pandemic? It got people thinking about it. And uh, typically in a primary, we'll see turnout Range from the very low, like around 10%, to the moderately high, which is the 20 to 25%. Um, I think we're somewhere between 27 and 30%. We still have some results coming in, uh, which is high. And, and 200,000 absentee ballots. I don't have the final number of the ballots issued in return. Uh, but at
0: least that many, yeah. But in
1: 2018, when we had the contested primaries for governor in both the Democratic and Republican parties, we issued 35,000 ballots. So this right. is like six times as many.
0: So, I mean, that's the other big thing that changed was the ratio between absentee and, and in-person voting, right? It totally flipped around.
1: Yeah, that was a big question as to whether those numbers represented um, voters who would have gone to the polls or in addition to those going to the polls, and it turned out to be the former. Is those were replacements for mm-hmm. in-person voting.
0: Yeah, that's great. What are, What are you seeing, Amy? What observations are you making post-election day?
3: Well, I think just uh, during this pandemic period, there's been two challenges really when it comes to elections, and one is setting up the vote for mail system, which does seem to have worked well in Maine, but we're still continuing nationally to see these just these claims that do not uh, have any validity about how that is common to have you know that is commonly associated with vote fraud um, and. You know that I think that's going to continue. Those kinds of claims are going to continue on for a while because they're part of a sort of partisan pattern. Which um, I mean, Secretary of State Dunlap got caught up in as part of the voter fraud commission when that when the, all of those statements were being made. Uh, the, the sad thing about that is that they they can be believed by people. And they can lose confidence in the election. although there does seem to be a strong association with partisanship as to who believes believes them or not, um, and there's some there's some research on that. But besides the vote for mail situation, which is going to be, you know, continuing, I'm sure into the future, this uh, in November, um, I've been concerned with how uh, voter registration would be going because. People don't have the same opportunities that they do when there are fairs, when there are all kinds of public gatherings, when we come back to campus in the fall, uh, to have tables with voter registration, it's not gonna happen to the same extent. And it's a more difficult to do as a result for a lot of people. Of course, people can go into their town halls if they're open, but they may not. And Maine, um, you know, is thirty nine states and DC have online voter registration and we don't. I mean we have great system in that we have same day voter registration, but it would be uh, that's also it's still there as, as far as I'm concerned some issues because of that that it could be easier for people to register for to vote. Um, and um, you know so that's one of the things that I'm thinking of it partly because as somebody, you know, works at a university, there was an incredible effort in 2018 to increase voter registration, and a lot of people worked on it on campus, did a great job, um, worked with the town clerk in Orono, particularly my colleague Rob Glover did, and and organized with a lot of people, and I'm I'm just a little concerned about how that is going to work out this year.
0: Well, and presidential elections are known to attract a lot of first-time voters, so it, it probably will be a heightened issue for November, but I want to give Jill a chance to reflect on what she observed on Tuesday and subsequently as well. Go ahead, Jill.
2: Thank you. Um, perhaps for the first time, and certainly in my life in Bar Harbor, I didn't observe anything. I did not <laughs> I voted absentee, um, (laughs) but I did go to get sworn in the day after and had a chance to talk to the town clerk. And um, it was an interesting tale that she told. She said, for the most part, things were very well organized to vote with safety precautions. She said the flow of the day was good. They were letting 15 people at a time into our quite large upstairs voting room. And that went well. She said most people had masks on and people were using sanitizer. She did say that the state did not allow them to require a mask, so if people came in without a mask, they came in and voted, and I wonder about that since we can require it at stores. I guess it's maybe not analogous to, to going shopping, but still, to, for the protection of the poll workers, um, it would be helpful if we could reinforce the mask issue. Uh, The one thing she was very specific about, um, and as with all our obsessive town clerks who were so focused on detail and so careful with the process, she said the absentee process overwhelmed them. And even though they were able to tally some of those ballots early, she said they spent eight hours on Saturday processing absentee ballots. And she said that was absolutely the most demanding, challenging, and exhausting part of the whole event. Um, She said she anticipates needing more help in November. She's concerned that people who declined, the the customary poll workers who declined to work uh, on Tuesday because of the coronavirus might well decline again in November. They tend to be in an age demographic that puts them at risk. So she is not sure where she's going to find enough people. She had to take on extra office staff for the two weeks before the election to help with the absentee ballots. And, um, overall that, that was the biggest issue for her. And I, I said, you know, what about the mask that, you know, you had to be in the room all day. She was like, ah, masks, it's the absentee ballots that really got to us and um, whether there are any changes that would, improve that process I don't know but she identified that as the clear challenge of the day. I mean
0: we heard that from clerks all over the state Matt you're probably deeply tuned into this too I mean you know it was more absentee ballots than they would normally process in a general election and it will be a lot more than that in November a lot more Um, you know if we got 200,000 absentee ballots now, we could have 500,000 absentee ballots in November. So the clerks are going to need to have some relief um, on one end of this or the other. What are you thinking, Matt?
1: I think you could see numbers as high as 600,000 absentee Right, right. Yeah, you know, The thing I heard uh, from clerks uh, in a similar vein to what Jill just mentioned was really the in-person absentee balloting on election day was just an, an almost unbearable strain on the staffs. So they had to have people both in the town office and in the polling station, sometimes down the hall from each other, someone would come into the town office and request an absentee ballot on election day. You know, we talked about this. I know that uh, a lot of the advocates were very very strident about uh, about doing this. And uh, the governor was very interested in it and we had the conversation. and. I basically waved the white flag on it and said, you know, we're going to have lower turnout in the primary anyway. So, it, you know, it shouldn't be a deal breaker, but I know I, I talked to the city clerk in Bangor and Bangor has got some different issues because they consolidated their polling place at the cross center, um, which, you know, they do a great job there, but it's just a lousy space for an election. It's too far for people to walk. Um, they were supposed to have been on the main floor, but they had a previously scheduled concert, which for some reason people seem to think wasn't going to be canceled. So they were voting on the concourse. And that same thing, they only let like 50 people at a time in. So they had lines snaking around the parking lot. So yeah, there are some adjustments that I think we're going to want to make in some of these polling stations. On the other hand, what I saw in like Lewiston and Augusta were some really elegant layouts that helped move people through very quickly. Some of the things that, like Amy is talking about, um, you know, like the online voter registration would have been an enormous tool for us to have, um, and I know that there was a real movement to drive in that direction, but you know, it was it, it was almost impossible for us to even get our heads around it in a short time frame, and I don't know that we'll be able to do it for November, honestly. Um, because I think the legislature would have to do that. There's, there's general consensus that the governor cannot create law by executive order, you know, can stay laws can, um, you know, um, uh, sort of give waivers for things, but can't establish a new program through executive. Right. So, and, you know, so we don't have a mandate, we don't have a budget. Um, we've already been told don't spend any money that, you know, hasn't already been approved. Um and you know our, our information services folks are working on a one-third staffing rotation. And to develop a system like that, even though there are a lot of states that do do it, no two states are exactly alike and something would have to be customized heavily, um, to get all that up and running in a few months when we're already you know stretched to the breaking point would be very, very hard to do. It was impossible to do for the primary. But it would have been a great tool because as Amy mentions, I mean, she's absolutely right. I mean, you know, how do you register voters when you're trying to keep away from everybody and keep people right. away from each other. That's, that's gonna be an ongoing challenge that we're gonna to have to really examine, especially for November. Um, what mechanisms we can use to get people registered. You know, The automatic voter registration system is about half built. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's a, a thing for the future anyway. Right, so right. Do other transactions. So.
0: You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERUFM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is Election Reflections on July 14, 2020. How did it go? Our guests this afternoon are Matt Dunlap, Maine Secretary of State, Amy Freed, Professor and Chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Maine, and Jill Goldway, columnist and former independent Maine state senator. This program was pre-recorded on July 16th. No listener calls are being taken. Um, should we talk about ranked choice voting for a second because we're sure. going into a ranked choice count here. Amy,
3: Do, do you mind if I uh, mention something else about, about no, go everything ahead. To, which is that um, I mean I, my personal experience with the voting involved being able to request the ballot online, the absentee ballots, which was very helpful. And also being able to bring it back and put it in a drop box outside of the Bangor city hall. And, and maybe this would be a good opportunity to, um, well, I don't know how many other places had those kinds of drop boxes, but you know, to encourage their use and also to publicize this quite a lot. And I, I maybe it was publicized somewhat, but I, I don't know. I just knew to, you know that about it for myself, but that might be helpful, especially if, I don't know. Can people get a? Can the clerks? When can they start counting the ballots? Because if they're getting them over time,
0: if they well, I could. Had, yeah. Um, a couple, I had heard that the drop boxes were back ordered, right? And um, I'll let Matt answer when they can start counting. T- tell us what the story on that is, Matt.
1: So, and this is something that we, we made some adjustments to with the governor. You know, the, the drop boxes, you know, obviously, that's a common feature in, in mail voting states, and we kind of adopted it. We, we wrote up some specifications, and we told towns that we could probably, using our federal allotment, cover up to 80% of the cost. So a bunch of towns did get them. Not, I, will, I expect we'll see more in November. So we did try to get the word out on that. Um, in terms of the processing absentee ballots, the law says they have to give notice to us 60 days before the election and they can start processing two days before the election. So Friday, Friday. yep. Um, I think the governor in an executive order um, pushed that deadline for notice to 21 days, which gave towns a little bit more time to assess what their needs are gonna be in terms of processing. I think we may wanna give them more time to process than we did. Uh, I know that the city clerk in Portland, they were processing 17,000 absentee ballots and they actually didn't finish their city ballots until the day after the election. So um, if they're going to be dealing with as many as perhaps 45,000 or more on the November election, I think we probably want to give them a considerable amount more time to get that done.
2: But they want to, From our clerk, I would definitely agree that more time to process those would have been really helpful. Yeah.
0: yeah. and. Of course, they, we won't have municipal ballots in November, or will, will we have a few of we those? probably have some, yes. Yeah. Because, you know, I think because pe- there weren't town meetings and there were a lot of municipal referendum, the ballot packages in some towns were a lot longer, and um, they were counting just the number of pages they had to put through those scanners. Yeah. Uh, Matt, what, what is the story on scanner procurement? Are there more, like, could we lease a bunch more scanners to help ease the throughput question?
1: Um, well, I think there's a limitation as to how many are available more than anything. I think, uh, I know Portland is talking about getting a lease on a high-speed scanner to move their absentees through a lot faster. Um, but, you know, we're, we pay we pay the lease on those. So getting more of them... Um, is not impossible uh, and we're going to explore that for November especially for some of these busier municipalities you know places like Bar Harbor which apparently is a hotbed of democracy um, (laughs) in terms of the number of people that vote so uh, we can look at that Uh, again you know some of this is going to be based on how much we have for resources to devote to it Uh, right now I think we have about 267 towns that use tabulators uh, and about 230 some odd that still count by hand so and those are smaller towns usually fewer than a few hundred voters so they can do that pretty manageably um after the polls close but was there um
0: was was there a a partisan split between those who used absentee ballots and those who voted in person could you tell matt
1: there seemed to be a higher turnout in person among republicans um you know and and i kind of Attribute this to some of the things that Amy was talking about. You know, it doesn't really matter what your politics are here. When someone in a position of authority says something emphatic, people tend to believe them. They tend to trust people in authority. So, when the president of the United States says that mail voting leads to rampant fraud, um, people believe it, especially people in his side of the political spectrum. So we heard from a lot of people saying they they we would not vote by absentee. They were going to show up at the polls because they didn't trust the process. And actually, I think the process around absentee balloting is even more accountable than in-person voting, all the emphasis that we put on that chain of custody. But it, it did seem to break along partisan lines. Far more Democrats were voting by absentee than were Republicans.
0: Were people mostly COVID compliant? I mean, I heard that masks were not required but did it seem like most people were wearing them or
1: most people were wearing them we you know the places i went you saw a few people without them uh but but most people had masks and you know because all the poll workers did because we provided them those in the face shields and the plexiglass barriers um but that was a question that came up early on could we require masks and my instinct right away was that yeah, you have a fundamental right to vote. You can't turn somebody away because they're not wearing a mask. And, and the attorney general's office tended to agree with us on that. Um, I did have one citizen say, we ought to push it, let it go to court. I can't see why a court wouldn't rule with you and say, like, well, that's easy to say when it's not your name in a lawsuit. Um, so, you know, we just decided to just leave that alone. And then the voters were good about it. We, we didn't have any incidents uh, or complaints about people being harassed or anything like that. So it was, it was good.
0: What, what um jill and or amy is your impression of the voter experience did people generally have a good experience with their absentee balloting or their in-person voting if they chose to do it that way or
2: heard anyone with any uh, problems about the actual process of casting a vote we had a sort of a um main style drop box. We have a gorgeous big old wooden voting ballot box and that was inside the building. But uh, to do that over a period of weeks, you never had you know more than one or two people inside. And so it was easy to just stop by, drop your ballot in the box and, and head out again. So I think that was popular. I think there was a high level of interest in the election and as with everywhere else, um, probably seventy five percent of our ballots cast were cast um, with absentee ballots
0: what What do you think was driving turnout, Jill, because it was high for a non-gubernatorial primary?
2: Well, <laughs> I think um political sensitivities are extremely heightened these days, and I think uh, with the kind of looming presidential election, people are perhaps paying more attention than they might in a less controversial year. Uh, We did have some local zoning changes on the ballot that were of uh, considerable interest to our community. So I think it was that combination of factors, but I would attribute it more than anything to the kind of the prelude to November of uh, how people are gonna express their opinion about the situation now this has been really the first opportunity for the public to make an official call on uh, what they think of the candidates and um, people are more than anxious to do that
0: what's your sense of that amy what 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 does it look like to you was driving turnout this primary season
3: well a combination of candidate operations really trying to you know push for strong turnout uh, but also, yeah, the the elections coming up are going to be very consequential and some are going to be extremely competitive. I think the second district race is that is c- pretty much always a, 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 a very competitive seat. Not always, but, um, you know, at certain points it's been considered to be a swing seat. You know, when you have a really long time incumbent, not so much, but often it is. And probably will be this time, and then the Senate race—it's a little hard to say from the polls, but I'm assuming it's going to be competitive. And it certainly there's a great deal of interest towards that race, both inside of Maine and externally, and it has a lot of implications for control over the Senate. So that makes it important in and of itself. And just these times, people are you know very involved and interested in. The outcomes of these elections, so they're going to come out and vote. If people think an election matters, that it's going to have an impact on their on their lives and on the future of their state and their country, they're they're going to go and vote.
0: Were there any surprises from your perspective, Amy, in terms of the outcomes?
3: Uh, not particularly. I really didn't know what was going to happen in the second district, although it turned out that the Bangor Daily News' poll was right on in terms of at least the order of it. Uh, and, um, you know, maybe some of the local races, which you couldn't quite predict, <laughs> didn't really know who was going to win some of those uh, state Senate primaries. Uh, so those, those were interesting. Uh, but, um, you know, overall, I don't think there was anything terribly surprising. Um, I did like using the the process of the absentee ballot and the, and the Dropbox. And I really like that, you know, perhaps this was just Bangor, but I got a little sticker in with my, <laughs> I could put on my I voted sticker, even though I voted absentee, small thing, but I think a, a nice little reward for us.
0: A little swag it goes along. Yeah.
3: Yeah. But and it, also, one thing I did wonder though, when I went and put the ballots in, because I also brought my husband's deposit, is like how often that Dropbox was emptied. And the day that I brought them, it started to hail, you know, like five minutes later. So I was thinking, gee, how long do they stay in this Dropbox? Um, and you know, and, and that in some ways that would have been nice to know, you know, just as when a mailbox will tell you when the mail is getting picked up to have a little bit of a sign to say emptied nightly or whatever it would happen to be. Do
0: you, do you know, Matt, most of the clerks I talked to emptied it every day, but.
1: Yeah, we didn't have any procedure on that, but that's my understanding. They, They cleaned them out pretty frequently. There's something about ballots and I can't really explain it. You know, it's um, maybe there's something spiritual about it. I don't know. But when we were doing the the ranked choice tabulation for the second CD in 2018 for the general election, we had a problem with one of the memory devices out of one of the Ellsworth polling stations. So the solution was to go get the ballots. I was on a Saturday and I said, rather than send somebody, I'll just swing down to Ellsworth and drive them to Augusta and you know saturday right you know and, and they had plenty to do and i thought well maybe i'll stop in and see my mother on the way get a cup of coffee and there was something about having those ballot boxes in my car and i just i i just thought i can't stop you know it, it's like i've got these people's voices waiting to be heard and i've got to get them to the tabulating center and you know I, and i think this is why a lot of elections officials pursue the exact perfection in this profession was such religious zeal because this is how we speak as, as a body politic. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if they have a camera on the drop boxes and every time somebody throws a couple in, they go out and get them, you know, just <laughs> to sure they're in their possession. Um, you know, that, that's, but I think that's just the, the diligence of our town clerks as much as anything.
2: I heard I mean, from Matt and I, I think that the experience when I, was did work at the polls uh, an election or two ago of the there are always two people in the presence of the ballots and carrying those ballots down to be locked in the vault for the night with you know checks and counter checks and all that It, it was really a moving experience to see democracy that up close and such diligent care being taken by the people, the clerks largely who manage those elections.
0: I heard from couple oh, I was just gonna say I heard from a couple of jurisdictions that the United States Postal Service went above and beyond the call of duty in delivering multiple times during election day if they had ballots coming in um, mm-hmm. over the course of the day to make sure everything that they had on Tuesday got delivered. But go ahead, Amy. Oh,
2: oh go ahead. Great.
3: Yeah, what I was going to say is just that sense of the importance of people's voice was why when I heard some people suggesting, oh, maybe we won't do the rank choice tally for the second district primary, that I said, no. I mean, it's not up to candidates to decide whether ballots are going to be counted or not according to
2: the law. We have a law. Made a ruling on that today that they said there's nothing in the law that says you don't have to do it if the candidate candidates have conceded the election. So there will be a recount on those, or rather a ranked choice vote on those. Right. I was
3: going to say, if you have an election and some people pull out of the election um, at some point, like let's say they all had to drop out, it would be up to the party to pick a successor. And the same thing, if you, you can't just you can't just fill the the uh, line, the ballot line, based on some willy-nilly process. There has, you know, the step, the first step is to count the ballots.
0: I think we have the voice of authority on the call with us today.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I'm this sure is the, votes be counted. This was one of the first questions we got the day after the election, because after all, Eric Brakey and Adrian Bennett had conceded. Do, do we still have to do the rankings? And in my instinct was, yeah, I mean, you have to complete the tabulation. And we talked to the attorney general's office very absolutely. So, you know, one of the questions that we get um, periodically from people who aren't in this business, they'll, they'll say, they see something on Facebook, right? And they say, is it true that you only count absentee ballots if the election is close? Well, no, we count every ballot. You know, you get, because you have to have a complete historic tabulation. And the same thing is true here. Uh, the law predicates that you know, if you don't have a, a winner, a majority winner, that you determine that majority winner through rankings. So even if you had a plurality election, and as they were totaling up the tally sheets, and they, you know, Amy Freed is beating Matt Dunlap nine to one, I just can't say I'm throwing in the towel. Stop counting. They right. need to have the final result, and that's right. what.
0: Yep. Um, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Matt Dunlap, Maine Secretary of State, Amy Freed, Professor and Chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Maine, and Jill Goldthwaite, award-winning columnist and former independent Maine State Senator. Our topic is election reflections, reflecting on the July 14th election that just happened on Tuesday. This show was pre-recorded on July 16th, so we are not taking listener calls or questions. We are interested in your comments. However, you can contact us at news at weru.org, put Democracy Forum in the subject line. You can also let us know about your election experience by participating in the League's Voter Survey. You can find links to that survey at lwme.org on the Democracy Forum page, and we'd love to hear um, how the election went for you, whether you voted in person or absentee. So, Matt, the ranked choice voting count starts tomorrow. What's happening?
1: Well, as we speak right now on July 16th, we're waiting for the arrival of the first ballot boxes coming from northern Maine uh, for the second CD. We're still waiting for some final tallies on some legislative ranked choice elections in southern Maine. Um, we may have a couple of ranked uh, Elections to do there too. The good news is those are in communities that use all tabulators. So it's just a matter of downloading images off the memory devices and just running the tabulation should be pretty quick. Um, with the second CD, it's gonna take us some time because we have to take the hand countdowns and organize those ballots and run them through the high-speed tabulator to get the images. And one of the things people don't understand about how, these, how this technology works is it's not like the old tabulators where the tabulator looked for the bubbles or the arrows. You know, uh, These tabulators scan the entire ballot. And the program is basically a sorting algorithm. Some of the, you, you can actually replicate it with Excel. I don't know how, but you can. We had some mathematicians do that after the first time we used it and they were able to replicate our results using the cast vote records that we posted publicly. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty transparent process. But basically, we have to create all those images from those hand count towns and that takes a few days. Uh, I anticipate if it goes as smoothly as it's gone in the past, we could be done by the end of next week with the second CD and probably the other, any, any other legislative tabulations we have to run as well. So it should go pretty quickly.
0: What, what, when you've done this before, there was a, a public gallery where people could watch the process. You must have some different protocols in place. We're going to keep it secret. It's be
1: secret this time. We're not going to allow anybody to watch what we're doing. <laughs> just seeing if you're listening. No, absolutely. It'll be public. Uh, it will be limited space. So we're t- talking about having a video feed so people can tune in uh, from home and, and watch the process. It's really exciting. It's people opening boxes and arranging stacks of ballots and then feeding them into the tabulator and then putting them back in the ballot box and resealing them. It's uh, And they do that over and over and over again all day long. And then, you know, and then as... The ballots come in. We only have so much space. So as uh, we process town ballots and put them back in the ballot boxes, the courier will then return those ballot boxes back to the towns as we go through them, so we can keep you know the the supply moving. The courier is tremendous at this. We, you know, this is something we you know it's like the pens. We stumbled across this because we were first doing ranked choice voting. Of course, Governor LePage was vehemently opposed to ranked choice voting, and the law had some gaps written in it you know there were gaps in the law that were not written (laughs) like how do you go about gathering materials and under the recount law state police gather materials well that was not included in the ranked choice voting law so we went to state police with hat in hand and said could you help us out and they said well you have to pay our overtime because they do only use troopers who are off duty to do this and it's going to be about $150,000." and then the governor said he wasn't going to allow the state police to do it so one of our property management folks said Well, what about bonded couriers? And I I think I literally rolled my eyes. I said, that's going to be half a million bucks, but go ahead and send out an RFI and see what we come up with. And they came in at a fraction of the cost. It was like $30,000, which we could actually absorb within the resources we had. And they're faster, actually. Uh, We had all the uh, that statewide primary in 2018 for governor. We had all the materials in hand in three days from across the state, which was pretty good. So it's a, it's a laborious process, it's painstaking, it's repetitive, um, but you do get the ranked result in the last round of who gets the, the majority in the last round. So it's it works as it was designed. Right.
2: Could I just say that I think the second CD election was one of the weirder elections I've ever seen. <laughs> it was, uh, the candidate was probably the most name recognition did the worst in the election. The uh, candidate with very little name recognition, but with the endorsement of the governor, um, did the best in the election. And the woman who put herself on the line for that governor every day for all those years uh, did not receive his endorsement and in fact received a bit of a side swipe from him. So the dynamics of it were very curious. The last debate they had was, I I don't even know if I could, acrimonious isn't the right word. It was personal. It was nasty. All kinds of accusations were flying. I don't know if any of them were true, but nobody really responded specifically to them. It was just a strange mix of people. And um, it'll be interesting to see whether that, what kind of a difference that recount will make but the the person who earned the votes who will now be distributed to the other two candidates it's kind of hard to predict who those voters might have chosen as their second choice and in fact if um, Republicans who are generally not as in favor of ranked choice voting maybe didn't make a second choice and I, I'm not sure if I know the answer to what happens if nobody gets, fifty percent if those if there were not enough second choice votes, maybe Matt can tell me.
3: It's an, I, someone yeah. is always gonna get fifty percent. You drop out the last person, you move the ones to their second choices, and then you have a new denominator. Oh
2: that's right. You drop out that person. Okay. Yep. I
3: actually have but you're not the first person who's asked me about that. I've had several people raise that question because the, you know, we know Republicans don't like to to rank yeah. as much. And yeah. the Bangor Daily News poll had something like 59% of the Republicans said they were not going to rank.
2: Mm-hmm. But it's oh, the denominator that changes. This right. Race. Yeah. OK.
0: But it will be interesting to see how many second choice votes were cast in that race, don't you think? Go ahead, I,
1: Matt. I think that, that's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, that was the big open question in the 2018 general election with the ranked choice tabulation for the second CD. She had a four-way race with Bond and Hoare, uh, and the question was how many of their voters ranked uh, second place choices, or were those mostly protest votes? And if actually about half of them did, and uh, because they were more progressive independents, those people tended to rank Jared Golden as their second choice far more frequently than Poliquin. Poliquin picked up both, but just not enough to overcome that that, that margin once those two were dropped off in the batch. Elimination process. So yeah. um, that'll be the question for sure.
3: So uh, And in the Senate race as well, I mean, how many candidates does it look like there will be? I guess we don't know quite yet.
1: Well, well speaking
0: me, of Max Lynn, right?
1: What's, yeah, well, what's happening well, there? And Matt?
3: Tiffany Bond has, I think, a lawsuit.
1: Yeah, I don't think that's going to go anywhere. Um, you Because know, her law, well, I'm saying that, You know, probably shouldn't say that. But you know, uh, we extended the filing mm-hmm. deadline for independence um, back under executive order it was supposed to be june 1st and the governor pushed it out to july 1st. and you know it may have merit i shouldn't say it's not going anywhere because it could I, I i never know how a judge is going to well,
0: rule matt explain to people who are listening who might not be up to speed on this what exactly is happening there
1: so for for party candidates you have uh, your nomination papers available on january 1st all they're, they're all available january 1st but party candidates have to get a certain number of signatures, and for the United States Senate and Governors, 2,000 signatures from registered members of their party, and they have to be verified by the town clerk and submitted to the Secretary of State by March 15th. Independent candidates have to get twice as many signatures, but they can get them from any registered voter, and they typically have until June 1st to do it. Um, So you know, the, the deadline was pushed out to July 1st because of the difficulty in gathering signatures during the time of COVID, um, you know, Max Lynn actually got enough signatures, uh, but Tiffany Bond said it was just too hard. And there was another candidate who also said that. So uh, they turned in what they had, which is like, I think in one case is like 600 signatures, and then went to court to sue us to force us to take them and qualify them for the ballot. So that's what's in play there. Uh, Max Lynn's petitions have subsequently been challenged by the Republican party. And we started the hearing process today, uh, challenging 711 signatures that uh, that he gathered for his campaign that they're questioning, so um, it, it, depending on how that turns out, he could be on the ballot. Uh, so if if that's the case, then you would have a three-way race anyway, and we would be using ranked choice voting for the U.S. Senate in uh, the fall. A four-way there's, race. There's right.
0: Jill Savage also, right? Jill Savage, that's right.
1: Yeah, she yep. hasn't she hasn't been as um, uh, as visible as Max Lynn this week, so. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm curious about whether, uh, about how many recounts there might be. I know in Senate District 8, which is both Hancock and Penobscot counties, a very close race between the incumbent, Kim Rosen, and uh, Larry Lockman, term limited out of the House. And that was uh, a very narrow division. I assume there will be a recount. Are there many recounts, Matt?
1: We haven't gotten any requests yet, but they do have five days to request. huh. Um, And depending on the margin, if it's within 1.5%, there's no deposit, and we go through the process of using state police to gather those materials. Um, And, of course, in the case of uh, that Senate race in Hancock and Penobscot counties, I mean, that's in the second CD, so we'll probably have that material anyway. Um, And then we'll schedule the recount, um, but nobody's asked for it. So until they ask for it, we don't schedule it.
2: Right. Mm -hmm. Interesting. There are
1: no, there are, that's, a, that's a common question. There are no automatic recounts. Um, you know, there used to be a time when we'd automatically gather materials, but we stopped doing that. We waited for somebody to ask us to do it. Um, and we've seen plenty of one vote margins stand up over the years. So,
0: You're tuned to Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters. Our guests this afternoon are Matt Dunlap, Main Secretary of State. Amy Freed, Professor and Chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Maine, and Jill Goldwaite, award award-winning columnist and former independent Maine State Senator. While we're on the subject of ranked choice voting, Matt, you like you didn't have anything else to do, you had to certify that petition yesterday. What happened there? And tell people what it was about, too. Oh.
1: Uh, Senator Troy Jackson, the Senate president, had sponsored legislation last year that would also include the use of ranked choice voting in the election of the president in both the primary and the general election. Because again, that was not something that was included in the original ranked choice voting law. So uh, the the legislation was carried over. It was eventually passed by the Senate um, on sort of the last night of a special session in August. The governor uh, considered this pretty thoroughly and was concerned about our ability to do this um, on top of everything else we were doing, had other concerns, and so held on to it um, and then decided ultimately to let it become law without her signature. Uh, That meant it would not take effect until 90 days after the adjournment of the second regular session. So we would not use it for the primary in March, um, which was a question we got a lot. The Republican Party Um, which I I think it's fair to say they see ranked choice voting as something of an existential threat. So um, they do not support it in any way, in any race. And so the party endeavored, because I think probably because Maine also splits its electoral votes. And so they're looking at every electoral vote in the election for president this fall. So they they wanted to uh, better their chances for whatever, uh, if there's any other way, better way to put it um anyway so they started the people's veto campaign in the winter time they and they had to have their signatures turned into us by um 90 days after the adjournment of the legislature which happened a little bit sooner than people thought even though they got a bit of a head start because of the governor's action they didn't have to wait till after adjournment but the constitution says you have to file the application by 10 days after the adjournment of the legislature but they could start earlier and they did and then the legislature left town on March on yeah, March 17th. And uh, so they had to turn in their signatures on June 15th, which they did. They they claimed to have 72,512 signatures. We have 30 days to certify that effort. Um, one of the things we found that the towns had already caught was that nearly 3,500 of them had already been found to not be registered in the towns in the petitions which were submitted. So they're down to about 68,000. And we found a a host of issues around uh, duplicates. We had a lot of duplicates, about 2,600 duplicates. We had almost 1,200 that uh, were turned into the towns late. They had to get them in before five days before the deadline to us. If they got them into the towns late, the towns could not certify them, could not verify them rather. Another 1,100 were um, invalid because um, the people that were circulating hadn't registered to vote yet. And the constitution says that only registered voters can circulate and only registered voters can sign. And there were some lesser numbers for other things um, they, they didn't date their signature. They, uh, the signature was made by somebody else, usually a couple standing at a table and somebody says, sign for me, mama. And well, mama can't sign for you, you have to sign yourself. But it was about um, a total of 11,178 signatures that we could not validate which left them short by a considerable amount. They needed 63,067. We validated 61,334. And as I've explained, I mean, these are not judgment calls. This is black and white. You have to be a registered voter to circulate, have to be a registered voter to sign. The circulator has to sign the form in front of a notary. The petitions have to be taken and verified by the town clerks of the towns where those signatories reside. That's all immovable. And when those things don't happen, we can't, we can't validate the petition forms.
0: So the bottom line is we will be using ranked choice voting to um, elect presidential electors. You I know, suspect there'll be record. some
1: legal challenges to the, to the uh, determination, but if those don't prevail, then yes, we will be using ranked choice voting in November for the election of the president.
0: Did you want to comment on that, Amy or Jill, ranked choice voting for president?
3: Well, I think that uh, the more consistency in the elections, the better. It's sometimes very, not, not so confusing for me, but it takes, uh, it takes me back a bit when I see a ballot and it's using a couple of different systems. Um, I'm, I, I think it's pretty fascinating. We'll get a lot of national attention for it. Um, I would think that if there ends up being some kind of legal challenge for rank choice this fall, whether it's in the Senate election or the presidential, well, we just had adjudication on that from the second congressional district. And certainly that would carry over for the Senate race. But I would think it would also for the presidential because the U.S. Constitution allows states to determine how uh, to do the electoral system for the presidential race. I mean, we used to, for a certain time in the US in the, in the early 19th century, uh, have a lot of the determinations of electoral votes simply by the vote of, may, of uh, the state legislatures. And they did experiment with various mechanisms, sometimes using district systems the way we do and sometimes not. Uh, so there's really quite a lot of latitude uh, I, I, as as far as the Constitution is concerned about how electoral systems are developed for presidential electors. you
2: have thoughts, I don't, Jill? Yes, I don't think there's a reason. I mean, the rationale to me is sound for ranked choice voting, so I think if it applies to any election, it should apply to all elections.
0: Yeah. Well, here we go. You've got a couple of other lawsuits hanging out there, Matt. I don't know if you want to just uh, highlight
1: one. Yeah, I've actually kind of lost track of them. (laughs) Honestly, we had one that was filed today about um, um, electronic voting for people with disabilities. Um, It's something actually we're interested in doing, um, and we were interested in working with the Disability Rights Center on it. Unfortunately, they decided to go to court, so now we can't work with them. We'll have to work independently and we're still going to continue on that track um there i i like i I've almost lost track of the lawsuits we have the lawsuit around the uh um cmp corridor uh, because we validated that petition and we've just uh, finalized the question on it um and there's some question about whether or not the entire effort is even constitutional um i think we feel pretty strongly that that's something that the court ought to say one way or the other um, or at least talk about it before people vote on it. And then if they ratify it have it sort of whipped out from under them in a court battle um, But as of
0: now that question will be on the November ballot, right? Just,
1: it'll be on the ballot. So um, yep. And I have kind of lost track of some of the other lawsuits. We had, one, <laughs> we had one dismissed the other day that I didn't know had been filed against us. So as uh, a yeah.
0: <laughs> Well, we're uh, coming up to the end of our um, hour and I want to give you each a chance to make some closing comments so um, I guess I'll start with you, Jill. Um, what are your parting thoughts and final observations about election day, July 2020?
2: Well, as always around an election day. Um, I am encouraged by the people who participate. Still, 30%, isn't that great? When you think of what people risk to participate in elections in other countries, that um, it's easy for us, relatively speaking, for most of us anyway. and. Um, It's unfortunate that turnout isn't even better than that. Of course, this was the year of years. Who knows why people um, did not turn out, many of whom would have had perfectly legitimate reasons. Um, I I think that the um, exercise of that expression of opinion will help to both draw more people into the process as we get closer to the fall and it seems to me that if I'm left with a feeling at the end of an election day is things are not that bad. I mean, as, as uh, depressing as things may be on the average daily basis with all the news that's pouring in, you have an election day and you think, okay, we still have the opportunity to vote. We have peaceful voting places. Um, we've got a variety of ways that we can do that, that accommodate various needs of the voters. We're talking about things like no postage on mail-in ballots and so on. So overall, I think election day leaves me with a some sense of optimism.
0: Well, that's great. Um, Amy, what, what have you got to throw in here at final comments?
2: Well,
3: it was a different kind of election day for me in that I didn't go to vote. I like to go to vote in person if I can probably not going to go to vote in person in November either. But um, it is quite amazing how it all comes together, even if there's, you know, sometimes a few little quirks here and there, because it's so unlike a lot of other things that we do on a daily basis. You know, a grocery store is going to sell eggs every day. But when it comes to getting your ballot and casting your ballot, it's, you know, every year or you know sometimes a little bit more often. So it just has to be that time it all comes off and, and it's, you know, there's just going to be so much participation this fall um, and a lot of energy leading up to that, that November election.
0: Absolutely. Matt, we've got just about one more minute for you to um, make a wrap up comment here.
1: Well, I mean, I th- we've always said that our stock and trade in this business is not results. It's really voter confidence. And the thing I'm always gratified about the election is what happens afterwards, where people's like, there, we had an election and look at that, Jill Goldthwaite got elected to something. you know, And, and they, they don't question the process, they don't question the results. And I think that's really a testament to the hard work that town clerks do and that voters do in educating themselves, uh, that we try to do in providing a safe place for people to go and participate in their form of democratic self-governance. You know, I, I said on, election day, that in many parts of the world, the government tells us what to do. Now, today, we're the government, and we get to set the set the course for the future. And I think that's the theme that we have to maintain going forward.
0: And running in the run-up to November, there's going to be a lot more talk and preparation uh, along these lines, because it's going to be a high turnout, very challenging, high-stakes election. Lots of pressure on our election officials and um, everything that we can do to support them as voters and citizens we should obviously try to do so with that little um, moderator soapbox comment i will say we are now out of time Um, thank you to our guests this morning morning afternoon matt dunlap maine secretary of state amy freed professor and chair of the department of political science at the university of maine and jill goldwhite award-winning columnist and former independent maine state senator You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFM. fm We're streaming live at WERU.org. Our website is LWVME, LWVME.org for more information about this topic or to lo- learn about other shows in the series. You can subscribe to our podcast at LWVME.org or email us at downeast at LWVME.org e.org lwvme.org coming up next on werufm counterspin followed by between the lines on your community radio station werufm thanks everybody
3: thank you